The title of today's message is The Riches of His Glory. Last week we talked about being separate, right? Separate from any man-made idols that plague those who are opposed to the God of Scripture. And separate unto God as his holy people. Remember, we talked about that. The two are mutually inclusive, or at least they should be for the Christian, i.e., they're likely or should be likely to happen at the same time. No idols, be holy. No idols, be holy. In other words, you will live a holy life separate unto God if you are not about the business of creating and worshiping worldly idols. Also, in and among all of that, we saw last week that Israel is our example in this, according to Paul. More specifically, Israel is our example of what not to do. So that's a brief synopsis of last week, very brief. Today, we are going to pick up, beginning in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 10. After the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that they can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, he says in verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. What does Paul have in mind here? Well, for starters, isn't the entire Christian life summed up in this statement? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these, Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. So Paul is simply repeating Christ's teaching on how we are to behave before God and our neighbor, okay? And I'm speaking specifically of verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. I just want to make that clear. So we can safely posit that here. However, okay, however, I, I think that there might be a little bit more to it than that. Here in our our text, I'm saying, we have to be more specific in our exegesis of the text. This isn't just a general call to love your neighbor as yourself, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. Paul specifies that we are to love our neighbor by giving no offense with the liberty or freedom that we have in Christ. And that's verses... 23 to 33, all right? We're to give no offense 
with the liberty or freedom that we have in Christ. Meaning, is what I'm about to do, or is what I'm about to say, going to be spiritually profitable and edifying to my brother or sister in Christ? Paul says that we must think of our neighbor first in regard to that. He is saying in context here to the Corinthians that if they decide to take advantage of the freedom they have in Christ, what, what freedom specifically, Paul? To eat meat, sold in the marketplace, while not asking any questions for conscience sake as to whether or not it was used in temple idol worship. Remember that? He says that in verses 25 through 27. But, 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 Paul continues in verse 28 saying, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. So Paul is saying, in other words, okay, consideration for the conscience of another person is reason enough to abstain and thereby refrain from exercising your freedom. I want to read that again. In other words, consideration for the conscience of another, another person, is reason enough to abstain and thereby refrain from exercising your freedom. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Even though you've been given liberty in the Lord to eat that meat, you shouldn't do it for the sake, you may not do it for the sake, I should say you may not want to do it for the sake of your neighbor's conscience. The guy who told you in the first place that the meat was sacrificed to idols. Your liberty might offend him and do what? Cause him to stumble, right? Paul is saying that it's best for the Christian to exercise discernment, wisdom, and love for the sake of our brothers, for the sake of their conscience. That is what he means here in context, specifically when he talks about considering your neighbor first. But it even goes further than that. Paul then lists possible opposing objections like, why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Verse 29. And he asks, if I partake of the food with thanksgiving, verse 30, then why am I slandered for, what, for that which I give thanks for? Verse 30 also. The answers to those questions are in verse 31 and following, where Paul says, verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. I become all things to all men, so that some, so that they may be saved, depending on what translation you have. In other words, folks, 
This is not about you. It's not about us. It's about not hindering or impeding your neighbor. And it's about bringing glory to God with your behavior. Verse 31. It's about giving no offense to either Jews or Greeks or the church of God, Paul says. Verse 32. Paul continues. Okay, I just read a moment ago. I'm going to read it again. Verse 33. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit. Think about this. But the profit of the many so that they may be saved. He always has the salvation of others on his mind. And we should also have the salvation of others on our mind. People that we're about to converse with, we're about to commune with, are they saved, are they not saved? Lord, open a door, as Paul said, as Paul prayed, Lord, open a door for the word for me to share the gospel with this person. So we are to give no offense so that others can be saved. Instead of conversely, turning people off and as such causing them to possibly distance themselves from God or from the people of God. Because why? Because we had to insist on exercising our liberties in Christ before them. Why not instead lay aside your liberties, Paul says, so that you don't run the risk of offending your neighbor and then making him want nothing to do with your God and your church. In the past, while interpreting the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, I have used many different examples of liberties that we are free to exercise according to Scripture, but perhaps should not exercise if in the company uh, of someone that the father might be drawing to the son or, or if in exercising our freedoms in the presence of someone who is a new believer and as such as a new believer doesn't quite yet understand his or her freedom in Christ, etc., etc. At the risk of being redundant, I'm going to refrain from using those previous examples of our liberties in Christ that might make a weaker brother stumble or impede someone from coming to Christ. If you, most of you in this room right now have heard, heard those examples, but if you, if you haven't, and if you haven't, um, by way of the internet, those sermons are, are online at the web, our web, web page or sermon audio. You can listen to them. All right, back to our text. Before we leave chapter 10, which we're going to do shortly, there's something I'd like to tidy up a bit. This, this week, today. I'd like us to go back to verse 31, if you would look at it, chapter 10. This verse is part of this morning's text, and it is especially important. Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, of course, we just saw that this is right smack in the middle, okay, of eating, drinking, abstaining, having a good conscience, and giving no offense 
to the Jew, the Greek, or the church, right? It's right in there. So Paul, Paul right in there says, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. I don't want us to read over this lightly ever simply because it's a weighty matter. And so we need to examine before we move on exactly what Paul means here. For starters, he means that the exercise of our freedoms as Christians, our liberty that we have in Christ, should be done to God's glory. Okay? And if God's glory is at stake, even in something seemingly as mundane as eating and drinking, then Christians would do well to factor in God's glory for, or to, I should say, every occasion, we'll call it every occasion equation, okay? We should factor in what does this mean for God's glory that I'm about to do, that I'm about to say, that I'm about to demonstrate. God's glory is the ultimate factor in these matters of liberty that we've been studying over the past several weeks. And the doing good to our neighbor should also be unto God's glory. Why does everything need to be done to God's glory? And what does that look like? It looks like this. Everything we say and do Everything we accomplish in this Christian life, everyone we take to heaven with us, that's the only thing you're going to take to heaven. You've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You're going to take people with you. You get them saved through preaching the gospel. Everything you accomplish in this Christian life, everyone we take to heaven with us, in the end, it's all to God's glory. Or at least it should be. And I've said this before. Bears repeating, uh, couldn't be more fitting right here. We have to ask ourselves these questions when it comes to God's glory, when it comes to these topics, okay? Why would God create Lucifer if he knew he was going to fall? Why would God create angels if he knew that one third of them were going to fall? Why would he create Adam and Eve that he knew would fall? Why would God prepare Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins before he even created the world, let alone created you and me? And you will hear people all the time say things like, God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would accept Jesus as your Savior, and so he elected you based upon the decision that he knew you would make. You hear that. I hear it constantly from people. Now, if you say that, and I'm not being ignorant here, if you say that, then I can be sure about one thing concerning you. You've either never read the Bible from beginning to end or you've read it 
but you were not given the grace by God that is necessary to understand it. Why do I say that? Because the Bible nowhere, nowhere supports the God looking down the corridors of time theory. In fact, Scripture supports the exact opposite. Proverbs 16.4, Pastor Steve read it. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Does that sound like a God who looks down the corridors of time and acts accordingly with your free will and decisions? Look at, you can look or you could, you could follow me on these or you could just listen. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us, Paul says. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ. From when? From the corridors of time? No. Granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. How about Acts 13, 48? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. See, scriptures teach that you're either appointed or you're not appointed unto eternal life. Does it sound like a God that looks down the corridors of time? How about Ephesians chapter one, verses four through six? Paul says, just as he, that's God, chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world, there it goes again, scripture interprets scripture, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, this is God, God in love predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to what he saw you would believe when he looked down the corridors of time. No. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glory. Glory. Of what? His grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. His grace is glorious. Why is it glorious? Because through his grace, by his grace, he elects you. He chooses you before the foundations in the world of the world to be in Christ Jesus, to be saved. That's God glorifying. So, this next one's a little lengthy, which is why I'll ask you, close your eyes, if you would, and listen so that there's, you could focus. This is Romans 9, beginning in verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, For though the twins 
were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his election or his choice, some translations say, would stand. Not because of works. How can a baby in the womb work? How can a baby newly born out of the womb work? Okay? Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, Paul says? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, because that's the objection people are going to give every time, you know? So, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, think about that, folks. For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find faults? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why'd you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he, did, and he did so to make known the riches, here it is again, of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Every passage that I just read flies in the face of God receiving glory because he looked down the corridors of time and saw what decision you would make and then elected you accordingly. I've heard so many people, they'll say things like, well, Pharaoh, I can't, I've lost count of how many times people have said this to me. Um, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. And so that's why God hardened his heart. But if you read the account, Pharaoh did not harden his heart first. God hardened Pharaoh's heart first. People hear other people say things and they like it, so they repeat it, but they're repeating the wrong thing. Another case in point is Isaiah 46.10 in regard to this subject. Okay? They will posit, people will posit that God 
looks down the corridors of time by misquoting, misquoting this verse. They typically say this. They say, the Bible says in Isaiah 46.10 that God knows the end from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning, Isaiah said. And so, you see, God determines things based upon the choices that he knows people will make in the future since he knows the end from the beginning. That's what they say. That's not what Isaiah 46.10 says. It doesn't say God sees the end from the beginning. It says God declares the end from the beginning. He declares it. He makes it happen. In context, this is driven home even more. In, I'm going to read Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 8, okay? He says, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God seeing and declaring are very, very different things. God is not bound by time, nor is he bound by your decisions. Figuratively speaking, the only thing that God is bound by is his glory, meaning everything he does is for his own glory, especially his planned purposes for your life and for your good. He does that for his glory every time. Everything he does is for his glory. Everything. Even raising up Pharaoh just to knock him down, just to display his glory to his vessels of mercy. Think about that for a minute. I'm going to create this guy, Pharaoh. I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to knock him down to show my glory to my vessels of mercy. Habakkuk. The Assyrians aren't even thinking of you guys, but I'm going to make them think of you. And I'm going to turn their hearts to hate you. And then they're going to come and they're going to kill some of you and take you captive because you're disobedient. Does that sound like a God that looks down the corridor's tongue? This God is not caught by surprise. He is not sitting around wondering what decision you will make next. He does not. He, he, he not only knows what decisions we will, we will make next, 
He's ordained those decisions. He has either caused it or allowed it. One of the two. For his glory. In the end, it'll be for his glory. That should give you. Here's here's the good news. That should give you great assurance. If you're in Christ, it should give you great comfort and hope to know that God is in complete and utter control of your life. Even when you screw it up, he's still in control of it if you are his in Christ. Naturally, when people hear these passages, many of them object and they object angrily, citing that they have, quote unquote, free will to do what they want and that God doesn't interfere with their free will and that they wouldn't serve a God if it meant that they were just puppets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If God only has my good in mind and he's only gonna do things in my life that are in the end for my good, then I would love to be his puppet. I am his puppet. To those people, I say, go and read the Bible because you obviously haven't read it as evidenced by what you just said. And as you read it, and I don't mean this in any ignorant or arrogant way, I I sincerely mean it. If you don't understand these things, that's great. I didn't understand them either when I first heard them. I didn't understand these scriptures that I just read to you. I got angry. I've told you that story before. I was angry probably for about six months till I figured, till God showed me what those scriptures really meant. Okay? So there are people within the sound of my voice that don't understand these scriptures is my point. And if that's you, I would ask that you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and mark when you see God's sovereignty, sovereign actions over someone's life, especially over your life. Mark it down in your Bible. And if you have questions, write them in a notebook and then just contact either me or Pastor Steve or Pastor Scott. We will meet with you and we will sit down and have your favorite beverage and walk you through what these scriptures mean and how these things are arrived at. That's incredibly important. We all need to understand these. Okay, so the Bible is very clear that you don't have free will in regard to salvation. That's very hard for a lot of people to accept. But if I were to sit down with you with a Bible, I could prove it to you. So I would just ask that you give me a chance to prove it for for your sake. Somebody took that time with me. Several people did actually. And they had the patience with me 
to explain it. I wouldn't be standing here right now if they didn't. So, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 42, 8. In telling Israel how he was sparing them from destruction and giving them new prophecies, God says this. I love this. For my own sake, here's Israel. They're, they're just screwing up, okay? God says, for my own sake, I will do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. In other words, he's given them a second chance and he's given them a second chance so that he could make sure his name's not dragged through the mud because of the things that they're doing that they're not supposed to be doing. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no existence and that there is no God but one. We need to remember that. There is no God but one. Because the world between TV, radio, the internet, conversations with people at work, the world will, will portray that there are many gods. And I'm not talking about pantheism or animism. I'm talking about gods that we set up as a society and we worship. We are trained, again, I said this probably about two years ago, we're, we are trained to be so me-centered in American Christianity. We're conditioned to think it's all about us. Now, how can I prove that statement? Easy. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. I accepted the Lord. I said the sinner's prayer. I made Jesus the Lord of my life. I accepted Jesus when I was 21, but I didn't make him the Lord of my life till I was 29. We talk like Jesus did us a favor. Like, we, we talk like God was begging us to come to him. That's not the God of the Bible. Sorry, it's not. The God of the Bible is, no man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me drags him. John 6, 44. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7? For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? You get no glory. At least not in this life. You get no glory. Your glory will be obtained in the next life. And... When you speak like this from a pulpit, you always get the... So what you're telling me is God isn't fair mantra. Okay? God isn't fair. He predestines some to heaven and passes others over and doesn't drag them to the sun. And therefore they go to hell 
Let me tell you what fair would be. Fair would be you're totally depraved. You're born into original sin in the lineage of a fallen Adam according to his likeness. And if God were fair, he would damn every single one of us in this room to hell. That would be fair. That would be 100% justice. But he doesn't do that. He sends his only son, Jesus Christ, to manifest, manifest himself in this stinking flesh, in this fallen world, to save those of us who he decides and has decided from eternity to save. And if he's decided to save you, you will get saved. You may do it screaming and kicking, but you, you'll get saved. And if you're really saved, then you'll have an appreciation for the grace and the mercy, not the, God's not fair. You have an appreciation for the grace and the mercy that he has shed upon you. He has showered you in, saturated you with the love, the immense love. Let's pray.